Reading from Genesis 7, 1 to 24. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of birds of all the heavens, also male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blow down from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood and waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his son and his wife and his son's wife with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days of and after seven days the waters of the flood came up on the earth. In the six hundredth year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventh day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two, of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days and on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostril was the breath of life died. He bloated out every living thing that was on the earth of the ground, men and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were bloated out of the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. We are uh, continuing on in our series on the first book of Bible, the book of Genesis. 
and you can follow along on pages 9 and 10 of your service sheet, though we'll mostly be spending time in chapter 6 on page 9 there. As we turn to God's Word, let me pray. Lord, uh, your, your Word tells us uh, in Proverbs that uh, um, we are to trust in the Lord with all our heart, lean not on our own understanding. In all our ways, acknowledge you, um, and you will direct our paths. For some of us, uh, trust is not an easy thing. Uh, it's uh, not an easy thing with other people, and it's uh, about of trusting you may even be harder. Um, so we ask that you would enable us to trust you. Uh, we ask that you would reveal yourself to us uh, as you truly are. Um, would you meet us as we look into your word and uh, we ask that you'd send your spirit upon us. Amen. Well, we're looking at a passage uh, from the Bible that uh, for many of us is very familiar. It's the story of Noah and the flood and the ark. And your mind may go to Sunday school stories of fluffy bunnies and elephants and all kinds of animals going into a giant boat. Other of us, others of us uh, may be less familiar with this story. Uh, if you've heard of it, you may regard it among other ancient tales about catastrophic floods that are recounted in ancient works such as the Epic of Gilgamesh or the Atrahasis myth. Or maybe you have no idea what I just said, and that's okay too. But when we come to this story, uh, I think there's a few temptations that can distract us from some of the hard words that are on the page. On the one hand, we may just treat this as a story uh, that's a cute Sunday school lesson, and we focus on the fuzzy animals and the rainbow, uh, which appears later on in the back half of the story, which we'll get to in the next few weeks. But, but this uh, remains just a children's story that, that we don't give much thought to as teenagers or as adults. On the other hand, we may be captivated by all the scientific and archaeological and historical mysteries that present themselves as we think about a flood that covers the whole earth and a, a boat big enough to handle all these animals and all those sorts of questions. That may seem compelling to you, um, or it maybe just seems like nonsense. The, that, this whole enterprise, though, um, is not something that we're going to dive into in the time that we have this morning. Um, though I'm happy to talk about uh, those sorts of things afterwards if uh, you have questions of that nature. But if we step, take a step back from uh, all those approaches to the Bible passage that is before us, and we take a look at some of the other details of the story, I think we'll find that this is not a feel-good story, nor is it an apologetics manual, but it's actually a deeply disturbing story that brings up some fundamental questions about who God is. At the heart of this story is the question of whether or not God can be trusted. And alongside that is the question of, is humanity any good? Is humanity even worth saving? And even, uh, how can God trust Noah in the middle of all of this? At first glance, we have a mass of wicked people whose every intention of the thoughts of their hearts are evil. 
and we have a God who resolves to blot them all out from the face of the earth. This doesn't sound like a great, great story. And what I want to do this morning is to take a look at what this te text says about the nature of God and the nature of humanity and suggest that God can indeed be trusted, even in the face of immense evil and destruction and judgment. So as I stand here this morning before you, we're in a deeply divided and violent time. In fact, in the year just past, 2023, there were more global conflicts going on at the same time than at any time in history since World War II. That's a lot of conflict going on, especially when you consider that the 20th century has often been referred to as the century of total war, a term that initially came, to, came into use to describe the change of war tactics from strategic battles uh, for limited economic and social gains to conflicts that targeted and employed all sectors of society for the aim of complete domination. That was uh, perhaps most explicitly experienced in World War I and World War II. And it was expanded throughout uh, a good portion of the 20th century as people lived under the specter of the Cold War and other wars like the Vietnam War, the Korean War, the First Gulf War. And as we hit the new millennium into 21st century, um, it's marked by the 9-11 terrorist attacks um, that happened right downtown, um, not very far from where we sit this morning. And in the face of such violence, such persistent and recurrent violence, it's often hard to imagine a hopeful future. Some of us have vowed never to bring children into such a world as we have right now. Some of us can't even envision what the end of next week will look like, never mind 10, 20, 100 years from now. I suppose in some ways it explains the, the large amount of uh, dystopian novels and television series that have grown in popularity, and many of them are really, really dark. And it's not just about war. There's many concerns about the environment, which has led to despair in some circumstances, or militant protest and conflict in others. And our culture is one of uh, excess and constant change and, and consumerism, and all that comes at a price. But throughout history, there have been people who, in the face of immense despair and violence and corruption, have found hope. Oftentimes, a reaction to things like the presence of war and violence or the exploitation of the environment is to look back to an idealized past, uh, to try to reclaim something that was lost. We look to an ancient culture and we try to reclaim what we think that are the best things that they had. Or we hearken back to an imagined time of a pristine environment unsullied by human greed and presence and try to restore that. In our own religious tradition here, we have the book of Genesis, uh, which we're looking at this morning. But when we look back at Genesis, when we look at it, we actually find a story that has very little of an idealized past. In fact, there's a few verses right at the beginning of Genesis chapters 1 and 2 that describe something of a world where all is as it should be, where God and humanity and the rest of creation exist in harmony. And then we get to chapter 3, and the rest uh, is a mess of humanity, uh, mainly doing their own thing. 
And when we look at the story of Noah, we're, we're coming to the end of one historical arc, uh, one that began with Adam and Eve, and now comes to an end in an explosion of violence, and we actually have the beginning of another arc that is starting off in a watery chaos. And we find in the middle of all of that, uh, Noah, someone who hasn't given up or given in to the corruption and violence around him. And I think that Noah is able to do this because God hasn't given up and abandoned his creation, even though there may be reason to do so. He didn't do that back then, and he hasn't done that now. And so we're going to take a look at God, and then we're going to take a look at Noah. And I want to suggest that even in the mess of all these things, God can be trusted for, for two reasons here. One is that he is just, and the other is that he is present. And I also want to suggest that God trusts Noah, because Noah seeks after God and trusts in God. So God can be trusted because he is just and he is present. And we'll get back to Noah in a little bit. The setting is, in verse 11, that the earth was corrupt in God's sight and it was full of violence. The words corrupt and filled with violence are repeated here. Another way to understand uh, corruption here is, is maybe the word ruined. The earth was ruined. And this includes, it seems, the whole created world. Even the animals are corrupted. The violence, the evil, the wickedness of people has spread to the whole creation. And what we actually see here is a twisted parody of the mandate that humanity had been given when they were created. Think back to the creation account where God makes Adam and Eve and tells them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Well, people have multiplied now, and along with that, with that population growth, uh, the earth has been filled with violence. And here we come to a, a question about the nature of God. Is, is he just? Is he a tyrant? He's about to flood the earth and wipe out basically everyone. Seems like maybe that's a bit of an overreaction. And so the question is, uh, what, what, what's your image of God? And when you think about God, um, what do you think his character is like? Right, we're in a church uh, where we often talk about how God is love, he's good and merciful and, and gracious and kind. Can we reconcile that with what is going on here? Some people, though, uh, they, they tend to think of God as a tyrant, or maybe distant, or stubborn, or an absolutist, or even just disinterested in the world. Um, right? He's either absent altogether, or he's delighting in the misery of us lesser beings. And I think even those of us who say that we think God is loving and merciful and kind, actually I kind of believe that, that God is less than um, at least that, that belief is actually what shapes how we live. Um, back, back in the day, uh, we had uh, these things called newspapers. Um, I don't know if you remember. Um, it used to be that you would get onto the subway, and instead of ignoring everyone else by staring at your phone, you'd ignore everyone with these large sheets of paper that you'd have to fold vertically in thirds so that you could read it without bothering the people that you're ignoring. 
in these, uh, these said newspapers, uh, there was a comic section, and uh, in that comic section, one of my favorites was called The Far Side. Um, it's a very odd comic uh, that specializes in absurdity, and to be honest, it's just really weird. But uh, among these Far Side comics, there's this one that depicts God sitting at some sort of control center, and there's buttons all over the console, and on the screen above the console, there's an image of a piano being hoisted up over a sidewalk. It's being moved into a building. And underneath the piano, there's this unsuspecting man walking. And God, uh, with this disturbing sense of anticipation, his hands hovering over a big button, and it says, Smite. <laughs> and I think there's a lot of us that, when it comes down to it, uh, this is the image of God that drives how we live whether it's in fear of him or in spite of him. But that's not God here in our passage. God is not one who is disinterested in his creation, absent and letting it run on autopilot to oblivion. Neither is he arbitrarily causing misery and suffering for people. And so to get a grasp of what God's doing here, we, we need to get a handle on the story arc that's drawing to a close with Noah here. We go back to Adam and Eve when they're cast out from the presence of God in the garden. The reason that's given is so that they would not eat from the tree of life and live forever in a broken state. The first humans God, cre God created reject him and they seek to live life on their own. They're seeking to be the ones who determine right and wrong and in doing so the relationship between God, humanity, and the earth is fractured. And now God had warned them not to disobey him, that to seek to live in independence from the author of life will result in death. And that's exactly what happens. It's not physical death right away, but, but there's spiritual death being cut off from God. And once spiritual death has occurred, physical death uh, will inevitably come. And now Adam and Eve, they have children, and just as humanity multiplies, so does violence. His son Cain kills his brother Abel, and violence, death, and pain start to become commonplace among humans. And now while all of this is happening, God doesn't just abandon his creation. He shows up. He's caring for Cain when Cain is afraid for his life. He gives Eve another son, Seth, after Abel has been killed. And later on, uh, down in uh, Genesis chapter 5, we find a man named Enoch, uh, who, uh, we're told, walks with God um, and uh, seems to not die. He walks with God and he's no more. Um, and God, God kind of ended everything, right, as Adam and Eve reject him, but instead he lets people live. It would seem uh, he lets them live very long lives, uh, hundreds of years according to the genealogy in Genesis chapter 5. And throughout all this time, he remains active in his creation. He's interested in the people Caring about, caring about the affairs of people. He's not a remote, disinterested God. But then we come to the time of Noah, and the wickedness and violence have taken over. And God says, enough. Like, this is not uh, an arbitrary stop that, that God's just like, um, you know, you've invited me, you're begging me, I find, just stop it. Um, that's not what God's doing. It, it, it isn't um, that God just finally got sick of people and just gave up and like, I'm out. Um, what we're doing what we're here is uh, we're coming to the end of a period of time. Right? Noah is actually the first generation to live 
after the death of Adam. If you go through and kind of calculate the births and, births and deaths and all the, the, the numbers of Genesis chapter 5, you find that Noah is the first one to live his entire life after the death of Adam. Adam lived for like a really long time. But, but we have like this new generation has, has shown up on the scene. And it's as if God has been allowing people to grow, to live, and to give them chances to turn back to him as the first humans live out the limited yet substantial amount of years. And even as Adam and Eve's lives draw to an end, um, that, that there, there's, there's a sense that, that, that God, God's still just um, giving them a chance. But there's this new generation coming up, and, and here God sees the need to, to step in and ensure that finally that, that justice is done, that violence will not continue unrestrained. And so immediately before our passage, uh, we're told God restricts the lifespan of humans to 120 years, and then he ushers in a, a recreation of sorts. I'm, I'm, I'm reading uh, this, this book right now uh, that's on the history of sugar. Um, I know, it sounds riveting. Um, but, but it's kind of about how uh, the cultivation of sugar, uh, which goes back thousands and thousands of years, uh, has transformed uh, nations, it's transformed politics, it's transformed our health, it's fueled wars and the slave trade, and, and it's impacted the environment. Um, it's a subject that, that, that hits home for me because uh, I've heard um, a lot of stories um, from my own family history of the injustices that my ancestors faced on sugar plantations in Trinidad, and how even like after my grandfather had made a go of it after being able to leave the sugarcane plantations, he faced further injustices when at the hands of the plantation overseers who would just roll into his store, take what they want, not pay, and there's nothing he could do about it. And there's uh, nothing he could do about it, and, and right, like, there's nothing I can do about that. Right? It's just part of this, this system and this history that's so much bigger than any one person can do anything about it. Um, there's a, a level of evil and corruption and violence um, that's in the world that um, and even when humans act uh, out of resistance and justice, uh, it can just seem inadequate. Right? And I think that's something of, of what's going on when we come to the story of Noah. Um, God's the one acting in a way to restrict evil that's become so large, it's dominating everything. What I've been trying to get at here is that uh, God's sense of justice, uh, combined with his presence, give us reason to trust him. And I think we see this uh, more clearly as we turn our attention to Noah and how God interacts with him. Now, Noah is an interesting guy. We're told that Noah was a righteous man um, right away in uh, chapter 6, verse 9. There's a sense that there's something about Noah that makes him stand out from everybody else. He's said to have walked with God. Only one other person said to have done that so far in Genesis, Enoch. He's a, that's, that he's that mysterious figure who did not seem to die. And there's only two people so far that have literally walked with God in the garden, Adam and Eve. 
And what is it about Noah that would cause God not only to spare his and his family's lives, but to choose him to gather a boatload of animals? Well, the word um, that's translated as righteous here is a word um, that, that combines the ideas of blamelessness and a commitment to serving in the best interests of all people. All this, uh, this comes from walking with God. And so that's Noah's reputation among all of these wicked people. Uh, and another way to say this is that Noah was regarded as a just man. Now let me unpack that just a little bit. Um, like Noah, Noah isn't perfect. We'll find out just how imperfect he is uh, after the flood when he's discovered uh, drunk and naked in his tent. I don't think that combination of things really has ever turned out well. But Noah's life uh, is set in a posture of responding to God's leading. In effect, his life is a response to the grace of God. It's a responsiveness to God's presence. This commitment to serving in the best interest of others comes out in two ways in our passage. The first is in his blameless conduct towards others. We really don't know many of the details about how this exactly plays out in his life. Um, we do know that Noah is somewhere between 500 and 600 years old at this time, which I think is plenty enough time to build up a reputation um, where, where people, you know, they can't dig up any dirt on him. Um, he's a man of integrity in how he relates to people. He's an upright person. And, and I think he's able to do this because he walks with God. He's had 500 years of walking with God. And, and, and this isn't just like 500 years of uh, prayer and fasting and uh, hiding out in a monastery. Um, it's responding to God's call to follow him and honor him. And that flows out into serving the well-being of others. Noah's life is a life of trusting God repeatedly over time. And a word that we have for that kind of trust is faith. I think of Noah kind of like this. Um, imagine like, uh, you know, you come up to me and you're facing a truly unjust situation, right? Say you're at risk of losing your business and your home and like, this is all due to corruption and, and violence and, and none of it's your fault, right? Like your safety, your livelihood, like everything's at risk because of some corrupt group that's threatening you. Now, now there may be not a lot that I can do about it, but but you know, you come up to me and, and I'm just like, well, I can't I can't really do anything about you know, I know this guy. Um, his name is Noah. Um, he's been around for a while, right? Like like 600 years, uh, and you know, he's a little odd. Um, that that happens when you live for half a millennia. But um, to be honest, um, at the moment, like. He's, he's got this project going on in his backyard. Um, he's building kind of this giant boat, and I think there's rumors he's turning it into like the zoo or something. Um, but let me tell you, this man, Noah, he will have your back. He will not back down until justice is done for you. You need to meet this guy. He's for real. Right? That, now that's the kind of person that Noah is. But Noah's conduct towards others uh, takes on a different emphasis once he's on the ark. God tells him that, uh, that he's going to cause this great flood and wipe out people because of their wickedness and that he's to build this ark and gather up all these animals. And 
God's trusting Noah to build this boat and to care for the well-being of all the animals, right? He stocks the boat full of food at the end of chapter 6, and, and Noah does all that God commands. This again has echoes of the creation story in Genesis 1, where Adam and Eve are to steward, to care for God's creation. Well, by Noah's time, uh, humanity's done a really poor job of that, to the point where all flesh is corrupted, that term that includes animals, and, and now we're, we're facing this, this sort of uncreation and recreation. The waters are unleashed, the rain comes down from the heavens, and water is unleashed from below, and all is returned to a watery chaos. And again, this echoes the opening verses of Genesis 1, where the earth was formless and void, and God's Spirit hovered over the waters, from the ancient symbol for chaos. And Noah is stewarding a remnant of creation on his boat. And yet, uh, even in this, this sort of um, chaos, God is an absent. Um, He's the one who shuts Noah and his family safely in the boat. He's the one that preserves his creation through all the flood. And the words that immediately come after our passage um, that we'll see next week is that, and God remembered Noah. And so it's from Noah that humanity starts over. And spoiler alert, um, they just make a giant mess of things just like Adam and Eve did. Um, the trajectory of history, though, is that God never abandons his people. And eventually, as he draws, he ends up drawing near, he's draws as near as, as anyone can possibly draw in the person of Jesus. And in Jesus, we see God um, caring deeply for the outcasts of society, the victims of oppression and violence, and the widows and the orphans. The people that are exploited and used and then ignored. He brings dignity to those who have none. And he brings a message of judgment on those who are corrupt and greedy and selfish and violent. Jesus is at the same time the bearer of judgment and the hope of the world. God visiting his people to set things right for all. And as he lives a life free from sin and corruption and embraces death on a cross, death, the penalty for rebelling against God and seeking to live a life on our own terms, the death that we're destined for, he calls us to deny ourselves, take up our own crosses and to follow him, and to receive life from him. He is God who draws near to us and takes on death and defeats it by rising from the grave. He takes on the death we deserve and mends the break between God and us in the world. And he invites us to follow him, to trust him as Noah trusted him, to walk with faith, to walk with God. Jesus bears the burden of justice uh, because God is just and cannot let evil and wickedness go on. But he calls us to follow him in being a people of justice and faith. God is with us in all the uncertainties of the world. There, there's a reason why um, in our baptismal liturgy, our, our service when we have baptisms, um, that uh, when, when someone is consent to follow Jesus and they're, they're receiving baptism, they're being marked by baptism, we pray a prayer that goes like this. It says, uh, 
Almighty and everlasting Father, in your great mercy you saved Noah and his family in the ark from the destruction of a flood, prefiguring the sacrament of holy baptism. Look mercifully upon these your servants, wash and sanctify them through your Holy Spirit, that they may be delivered from destruction and received into the ark of Christ's church. And being steadfast in faith, joyful through hope, and rooted in love, they may pass through the turbulent floods of this troublesome world and come to the land of everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We're called to walk by faith and act justly, just as Noah did. But we're not called to do that alone. We together are witnesses of the new creation that will be when Jesus returns and sets all things right and makes all things new. But we remain in the midst of a turbulent world. What does that look for us? What does that look like for us here at Emmanuel? Right? To be um, the ark of Christ's church in a world of trouble. So as we choose to respond to God, by walking with him in faith. Um, what we're doing is we're choosing uh, to do that as a part of a restored humanity in Jesus, where we care for each other and for God's creation in a way that does not give in to despair, but it's rooted in the hope that God is just, that God is present, and that in following him, there is life. Hello everyone, my name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.